When I was uh, growing up, we used to have uh, a dog uh, called Gemma. I never, I, I don't really like animals all that much, to be honest, but I could get on with my dog. And one of the reasons we got on uh, was because I used to enjoy playing with this dog. But one of the things I used to enjoy doing was winding Gemma up. And one of the ways I would do that was I used to pretend that there was a cat in the garden. And so I would say to the dog, cats, and she would go crazy. The dog would be barking around, and sometimes, if I, in my crawler times, I would leave the patio door shut, and the dog would run into the patio door and sometimes, um, you know, probably get hurt. The dog never learnt the lesson that I was joking because there was never a cat in our garden. Why wasn't there a cat in our garden? Because the cats in the neighbourhood must have had a secret cat meeting and said, don't go in that garden because there's a dog called Gemma that will get you if you go in there. The dog didn't learn its lesson. The cats learnt pretty quickly. And as we read Psalm 78, we'll see that as God's people, we are more like my dog than the cats. Because we see in this psalm the people of God not learning the lessons that God is teaching them. Last week in Psalm 78, we saw that God is good to remember. We saw how Asaph is telling God's people to teach the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord and the decrees that God has made. And in tonight's uh, and tonight we're going to look at the rest of the psalm, but we've got a bit of a challenge before us because this is the second longest psalm. It's 72 verses. We haven't got that much time because we've got communion. And so I was wondering, how are we going to do this? But as I was reading the psalm, the purpose of this psalm is not that we go into the detail of every single verse. The purpose of the psalm is that we see a history of God's people and we draw lessons from their history that as God's people we ought to learn so that we don't repeat them. Last week, or last time rather, in verses 1 to 11, we saw in the introduction that Asaph tells us that we need to learn these lessons and that we need to teach them to the next generation. The the key verse there is verse 4. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6, we read that in the history of Israel, it's written as an example for us that we would learn these lessons. And then from verses 12 down to verse 72, we read of what we are to tell the next generation, what this history is. So verses 1 to 11, we see, tell the next generation. And in verses 12 to 72, we read what we are to tell them. And this is done by going through two cycles of history. And it goes over the same kind of ground from two different angles. And in both of these cycles, we see four lessons that we are to teach. Four lessons to teach. And hopefully this slide on the screen is helpful. This slide gives those four lessons and how the psalm presents them. The psalm does uh, two different cycles. It goes through a history of God's people, and then it goes through a history of God's people again to teach us the same four lessons. The four lessons are we see, first of all, that God has worked 
with mighty acts for his people. Then we see how God's people have rebelled against him. Then we see that God judges his people for their rebellion. And then at the end, we see the great mercy of God for his people. So I'm going to read Psalm 78. And as we do so, hopefully you'll see the helpfulness of the slide. So cycle one is verses 12 to 39, and then cycle two is, begins at verse 40 to the end. So let's read uh, Psalm 78. It's a long psalm, uh, but it's important that we read all of God's word together. So let's uh, do that. Psalm 78, a maskil of Asaph. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have taught us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, and he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know them. Even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. The men of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant. They refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them. He did miracles in the sight of their ancestors in the land of Egypt, in the region of Zoan. He divided the sea and and led them through. He made the water stand up like a wall. He guided them with the cloud by day and with light from the fire all night. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out of a rocky crag and made water flow down like rivers. But they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the wilderness against the Most High. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God. They said, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? True, he struck the rock and water gushed out, streams flowed abundantly, but can he also give us bread? Can he supply meat for his people? When the Lord heard them, he was furious. His fire broke out against Jacob and his wrath rose against Israel. For they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. Yet he gave a command to the skies above and opened the doors of the heavens. He rained down manna for his people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Human beings ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. He let loose the east wind from the heavens and by his power made the south wind blow. He rained meat down on them like dust, birds like sand on the seashore. He made them come down inside their camp, all around their tents. They ate till they were gorged. He had given them what they craved, but before they turned from what they craved, even while the food was still in their mouths, God's anger rose against them. He put to death the sturdiest among them, cutting down the young men of Israel. In spite of all this... They kept on sinning. In spite of his wonders, they did not believe. So he ended their days in futility and their years in terror. Whenever God slew them, they would seek him. 
They eagerly turned to him again. They remembered that God was their rock, that God most high was their redeemer. But then they would flatter him with their mouths, lying to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day he redeemed them from the oppressor, the day he displayed his signs in Egypt, his wonders in the region of Zoan. He turned their river into blood. They could not drink from their streams. He sent swarms of flies that devoured them and frogs that devastated them. He gave their crops to the grasshopper, their produce to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore figs with sleet. He gave over their cattle to the hail, their livestock to bolts of lightning. He unleashed anger against them, his hot anger, his wrath, indignation and hostility, a band of destroying angels. He prepared a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave them over to the plague. He struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, the firstfruits of manhood in the tents of Ham. But he brought his people out like a flock. He led them like sheep through the wilderness. He guided them safely so they were unafraid. But but the sea engulfed their enemies. And so he brought them to the border of his holy land, to the hill country his right hand had taken. He drove out nations before them and allotted their lands to them as an inheritance. He settled their tribes, the tribes of Israel, in their homes. But they put God to the test and rebelled against the Most High. They did not keep his statutes. Like their ancestors, they were disloyal and faithless, as unreliable as a faulty bow. They angered him with their high places. They aroused his jealousy with idols. When God heard them, he was furious. He rejected Israel completely. He abandoned the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had set up among humans. He sent the ark of his might into captivity, his splendor into the hands of the enemy. He gave his people over to the sword. He was furious with his inheritance. Fire consumed their young men, and their young women had no wedding songs. Their priests were put to the sword, and their widows could not weep. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep. As a warrior wakes from the stupor of wine, he beat back his enemies. He put them to everlasting shame. Then he rejected the tents of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that he established forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens, from tending the sheep. He brought him to be the shepherd of his people of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. This is the word of God. Hopefully, uh, you saw those two uh, cycles of Israel's history. Hopefully, you saw those four lessons. And hopefully, you haven't just shaken your head at the people of Israel and went tut-tut. But hopefully, as you read this, you see God's word as a mirror for our own lives. 
As I have read this, I saw the praiseworthy deeds of God. I saw how God's people rebelled. And I thought, how could they do that? And then checked myself and realized how often I do exactly the same thing. It's easy to judge God's people, isn't it? It's easy to judge them. But we need to be aware that we struggle with sin as well. But let's look at those four lessons that God's people give. First of all, we see that God has worked with mighty acts for his people. The mighty act that's mentioned here in this passage is the act of the exodus. Asaph, throughout his Psalms, has mentioned again and again this great act of God, how he led his people from Egypt, where they were slaves, all the way through to the, to the promised land. And again, it's mentioned. Look at verse 12 and verse 43. Both of them mention the region of Zoan. The region of Zoan was the place in Egypt where God's people were slaves. And as God's people were slaves there, it was the place where God did his miracles. And in verses 44 to 51, we read of those miracles of the plagues. So verse 44, it starts talking about the rivers of blood and verse 45, the flies. And as you go through, you see in that account the miracles that God did in the region of Zoan. In verses 13 and 14, in that first cycle, you see about the parting of the Red Sea, that great miracle that God did that led his people through to the promised land. In verses 52 and 53, we see how the Red Sea was opened He guided his people through and his enemies were engulfed. And then in verses 54 to 55, how God led them through the wilderness and into the land of Canaan. So in both of those accounts, we see the people of God seeing miracles that freed them from slavery and led them into the promised land. Mighty acts of God. Things that were amazing. Imagine if you were there and you saw these things happen. But all of these acts are but shadows of what Christ has done. The Old Testament account of the Exodus is but a shadow that points forward to the freedom that Jesus gives us, not from slavery to Pharaoh, but from slavery to sin. And how he frees us from that slavery and gives us eternal life and a home in heaven. Which is what the promised land pictures. The kingdom of God and our home he gives us in heaven. And these mighty acts of God are given that God's people would remember. And how often in the account we read do we read that his people forgot. And how often do we forget? That's why, isn't it, we have communion. Tonight, we're going to go around the Lord's table to remember that great, mighty act of God that Jesus Christ did on the cross. Last, week, uh, last time, in verses 9 and 10, it says that the, the, the men of Ephraim, uh, though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. Verse 11, they forgot what he had done. They forgot what God had done. And this forgetfulness isn't like when I forget where I put my car keys. This isn't an absent-mindedness. This is willful ignorance. Choosing to forget what God has done, that I'll feel better about my disobedience to God. That's what they're doing here. 
This is not absent-mindedness. The people of God did not forget what God had done because they were absent-minded. They forgot what God had done because they were disobedient. We can choose to set aside in our minds that Jesus has died in our place on the cross. We can choose to do that, but don't mistake it for absent-mindedness. That's disobedience. And contrast then the mighty act of God with their response. And we see the responses the people disobeyed. Look at the first word in verses 17 and 56. Verse 17 and verse 56 are the first verses that are, are written after the mighty acts of God. And that word is but. But. After describing these miracles, what God had done in releasing his people, in bringing them into the promised land, in defeating their enemies. But, look at verse 17. But they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the wilderness against the Most High. The story of verses uh, verse 17 and down you can find in Exodus chapter 16 but also specifically in Numbers chapter 11. A lot here is uh, from Numbers chapter 11. And Asaph describes how God's people complained in the wilderness. Look at verse 18. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. And in verses 19 and 20, notice how ridiculous this is. Remember, God had just done all these things in Egypt, turning water to blood, sending flies, uh, the, 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 the death of the firstborn, all these amazing miracles. And he'd opened up the waters so that the people walked through. He'd given them bread from heaven. And then they said, well, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? Yeah, okay, he... he Listen to verse 20. He, he struck a rock and water came out. And imagine if I, if I did that. If I stood here and I hit a rock and water came out. It would be amazing, wouldn't it? And God, Moses did that. God used Moses to do that. And then they said, but can you give us bread? Can you supply meat? I mean, it's stupid, isn't it? It's ridiculous what they were doing. They weren't happy with the quantity of food they received. They weren't happy with the quality of food they received. And they doubted that God could provide for them. And it's ridiculous. They were freed from slavery in Egypt. And if you read Numbers 11, you'll read how they were longing for the the cucumbers and the melons and all these things they had in Egypt where they were slaves. It's ridiculous. It's rebellion. And then look at verse 55. In the second cycle where they, uh, they rebel. In verse 55, we read how God settled the people in the promised land. He drove out the nations before them. As you read the book of Joshua, you see these amazing battles. And the walls of Jericho fell down because God's people marched around and blew trumpets. If you go to a, a military council today and say, I've got an idea, that wouldn't be the one you'd present. But God's people did it. And it worked because God was with them. And then in verse 56, but they put God to the test and rebelled against the Most High. They did not keep his statutes like their ancestors. They were disloyal and faithless and as unreliable as a faulty bow. They rebelled. They didn't keep his word. Despite seeing all that God had done, 
And they committed idolatry. They worshipped and bowed down to pieces of wood and stone. And verse 57 talks about this faulty bow. They're like a broken bow, but it's more than that. A bow talks of the covenant. That's what the rainbow was. But they were a faulty bow, broken. And when you look at this, it's outrageous behavior, isn't it? God had done these amazing things. And how did they respond? They complained that they didn't get enough to eat or didn't like the food they had. And they worshipped wood and stone rather than the God who had led them through the wilderness and the promised land. And again, before we tut-tut, shake our heads and wag our fingers, perhaps we ought to look in the mirror ourselves and ask, how are we responding to the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord? How do you respond? Because isn't it often with discontentment? Isn't it often with complaining? I wish I had more, as if God has not given us enough. Isn't it often by worshipping idols? Okay, maybe, maybe none of you do have a a piece of wood at home that you've carved into something that you bow down to. But we all have those things that we love more than God sometimes, don't we? Do you never respond with disobedience? We're exactly the same so often. And it's outrageous, isn't it? When we think of what Jesus has done, as tonight we come to the the table and we see in the bread and the wine what Jesus has done for us. It's an outrageous response, isn't it, to, to rebel in this way? And these questions are all the more important because the next thing we see, the next lesson we learn, is how God judges his people's rebellion. And this psalm graciously gives us warning as to how rebellion against God works out for us. Often we think, that it, you know, we think it might be a good idea to walk away from God and to, to worship idols. This teaches us no. And in that first cycle that God gives, we read what happened in Numbers chapter 11. What happened? God gave them all they could eat. Look at verse 25. Human beings ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. In verse 21, God is furious. He's furious. His fire broke out. People died. But in verse 25, he gives them what they want. And in verses 26 and 27, we read of this east wind and this south wind that came. What that was is the the quail that God was going to give them to eat migrated. And as they were migrating, God sent two different winds so that they would migrate exactly into the position where the Israelites were. And it rained quail. They wanted meat. They complained they didn't have enough meat, so God gave them meat. He gave them so much meat, it describes it here as like sand on the seashore. It's an all-you-can-eat buffet. All the meat you can eat. But what happened? Well, look what it says there in verse 29. They ate till they were gorged. He had given them what they had craved. He gave them what they wanted. And then what happened? But before, verse 30, but before they turned from what they craved, even while the food was still in their mouths, 
God's anger rose against them. He put to death the sturdiest among them, cutting down the young men of Israel. God judged them because of their greed. Now, notice what happens here. They moaned and complained because they wanted more. Having more caused them to be greedy and deserving God's judgment. God gave them more. He gave them what they needed to sin even more. He judged them by giving them what they wanted. Be careful what you pray for. Be careful what you pray for. How many marriages become a disaster because God has given a partner to someone that was just desperate for a partner? How many Christians have walked away from Jesus because God has given them all the material wealth they asked for? How many people, how many, uh, I've, I've seen this happen, men have become pastors because they were desperate for the job and it's been a disaster and God's allowed them to go into the ministry. For me, when I was in my early 20s, I really wanted to be a pastor. I thought I was ready to do this job and how thankful I am that God saved me from that by his mercy. He could have let me and it would have been a disaster. I was not ready. How many uh, issues have we got in our society, in our Western society, because of overconsumption? Our health crises in our country are because of overconsumption, aren't they? Because we gorge. We have so much in the West that we have to go to the doctors because we've eaten too much food. It's a judgment, isn't it? I mean, it's one of the reasons as Christians why we, we, we ought to fast sometimes. Because we overconsume. We have too much. God judges us sometimes by giving us what we want. Isn't that what Romans 1 is all about? God, in Romans chapter 1, we see that phrase, he gave them over to sin. And when God gave them over to sin in Romans 1, They sinned and God judges them for sin. Brothers and sisters, we need to be praying for godliness. We need to be praying for contentment. We need to be longing for heavenly treasures, not earthly treasures. Because God gives us what we pray for. And he can judge us by giving us what we want. And it can be one of the worst kinds of judgment we can have. And then secondly, in, in the second cycle, look at verse 59 to 64. This is a, a different kind of, uh, of judgment here. And it talks of what happened in 1 Samuel, especially 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 4. Uh, it, it, we're not going to read the whole of this section again, but if you want to do some extra reading, read 1 Samuel 4. And the people were rebelling in idolatry, persistent idolatry and unfaithfulness. And this included how they were sacrificing in the tabernacle. And it was personified in 1 Samuel 4 in the people, uh, called the sons of Eli. And Eli was the high priest and his sons were, were just treating God's uh, tabernacle with contempt. Uh, the Bible describes them in 1 Samuel 4 as scoundrels and having no regard for the law. And this was the leaders of God's people. And in verse 61 it says in this psalm, He sent the ark of his might into captivity. 
his splendor into the hands of the enemy. He gave his people over to the sword. He was furious with his inheritance. It talks of the time in 1 Samuel 4 where the Ark of the Covenant was taken away by the Philistines, God's enemies. And in the, in the battle that can, uh, went ahead, people died. God's people were being killed. And that's why it says in verse 63, there were no wedding songs. And in verse 64, it says their priests were put to the sword and their widows could not weep. And it refers to, two, uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 20, when Eli's daughter-in-law gave birth to a son. And in Israel, the birth of a son was a time of great joy, but not this time. It says that that widow, because the priest had died, she couldn't even weep. The Bible said that she did not respond or pay attention. She couldn't even speak. It was so devastating. And she called that son Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed from Israel. What was the judgment here? God withdrew from his people. The blessings of God's presence were gone. And there was destruction. Lives were destroyed. This was the effects of rebellion. God's presence was withdrawn from his people. And it's judgment. That's what happens when you rebel against God. God can withdraw his presence from us. And why are these things written? So that the next generation would know. That they'd be warned. This is what rebellion turns out like. When you see someone and you see them going the way of rebellion and turning away from God and they say, well, this is just too hard for follow Jesus. I'm going to go the other way. Warn them. This is how it turns out. This is what God can do. It's a warning to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's an example to us. It warns us so that we don't do the same. And then look in verse 32 at how God's people in this cycle responded. Look at verse 32. So God, in, at this point, had given them all the food they craved. They'd gorged themselves. People had died. And yet, in spite of all this, they kept on sinning. That's the response that they had. That's not the response God was looking for. And it describes a false repentance. They came to God in their times of emergency and it describes uh, the the tongues that were lying. It was a, a false repentance, a flattery, but they were still disloyal. That was not what God was looking for. So what was God looking for as he judged his people? Well, look at verse 38. Yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. Well, if God's purpose wasn't to destroy them, the only option we have left is that his judgment was to turn them. You see, it describes before that, before verse 38, this false repentance, which indicates that God wasn't looking for destruction, but for real repentance. And when God judges us that we would repent, and if being right with God is the best thing for us, then it's true what verse 38 says, that he is merciful. What is mercy? Well, verse 38 talks about a good definition of mercy. He restrained his anger. 
So when God's people were judged, it wasn't, they weren't destroyed. That's what they deserved, but he restrained his anger. That's mercy. And in his mercy, he judges them that they might turn back to him. They didn't. They responded in the wrong way. But we see that God is merciful in his judgment. He restrains his anger. And then in the rest of those verses there, it talks about how he remembers our weakness. He remembers that we are a fallen people who struggle with sin. And he's trying to draw us back. That was the purpose here. The judgment of God was not malicious, but merciful. Now sometimes, and it's interesting how God works, because this morning, as we look at Job, we see that sometimes we suffer for no reason in particular that we know of. And that's true. But there are other times, as we see here, that there is suffering because of sin. Sometimes we have to suffer the consequences of sin. Now that's not to contradict what we read in Job. Both are true. And both should draw us back to God. However, whatever suffering we're going through should be drawing us towards God and not away from God. After the ark was taken and God's presence was withdrawn, things did not get instantly better for the people of God. As you read 1 Samuel, you see that they were given a king, King Saul. Another example, by the way, as you read 1 Samuel, of God giving them what they wanted and it wasn't a good thing. And King Saul came and had some victories. That was mercy. But Saul ended up being a judgment with his behavior and his leadership. He was a judgment against God's people. And so as we read verses 67 to 72, we read how God in his mercy gives them another king. Look at verse uh, 67. Oh, sorry, uh, verse... Yeah, verse 67, or 665 rather. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, as a warrior wakes from the stupor of wine. So God is rising up. He beat back his enemies. He put them to everlasting shame. Then he rejected the tents of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth he established forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens, from tending the sheep he bought him, to be the shepherd of his people Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. In his mercy, God gave them David. They deserved Saul, but he gave them David. He had mercy on his people. He withdrew from them, but then it talks about him building a sanctuary, a dwelling place. That was Jerusalem. He dwelt with his people again. He was a God of mercy. They deserved to be destroyed, but he dwelt with them. He gave them David, not from the tribe of Ephraim, that was the prominent tribe, but from the tribe of Judah. David came. And when David came, he was a king after God's own heart. David defeated his enemies. David established Israel as a kingdom. David led his people how they ought to be led. David led people to worship God because he worshipped God himself. He wasn't perfect by any means. But as God's people followed King David, there wasn't rebellion in the kingdom, really. There wasn't idolatry. We never read of David, we read of him sinning, but we never read of him worshipping idols. He was a good king. 
the greatest king Israel had. And as the psalm ends, that's where we end up. We end up with King David, a great act of mercy. This rebellious people were given a king they didn't really deserve, who did great things for his people and led them to worship God. That's how the psalm ends. That's how the story ends. Or is it? Not for us. No, we we are God's people in the New Testament. And we have so much more even than this. For we have four lessons to learn in this psalm. And we've gone through it so quickly. Um, You know, you can read all about it. Just read the Old Testament and you'll see. We have four lessons to learn, but as New Testament people, we have one place to point. For as we saw this year, as we studied 2 Samuel, as we look at King David, he points us to King Jesus. We read in these verses of the sanctuary, God dwelling among his people. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Jesus defeats the enemies of sin and death and hell. Jesus leads his people with skill and integrity. And whilst David was a sinner leading one nation, Jesus Christ is the sinless son of God, the king of a kingdom of every tribe, tongue and nation. And he defeats his enemies on the cross, taking the punishment for sin that we deserve himself. And David, King David, needed forgiveness And like King David, and as we can read in his Psalms, we can come to the Lord and we can seek that forgiveness. And we find it in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. And as God's people looked to King David as their king, and as King David led them with skillful hands and his integrity of heart, when we read to Samuel, we read of a people of God who are following a good king. And things go well in the kingdom as they follow King David. And in the kingdom of God for us, as we look to Jesus Christ, and as we follow him as our king, we are saved from falling in those lessons that the people of Israel fell in. We are saved from idolatry and rebellion and judgment as we follow King Jesus. But as we take our eyes off of him, now that is when we fall. And so the lesson for us, the biggest lesson of all, is that we look to King Jesus. And we keep our eyes focused on King Jesus. And we follow King Jesus with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And as we follow King Jesus, he, he, he leads us with skillful hands and integrity of heart, perfectly. And so when we apply this psalm, which is to teach the next generation... Yes, we teach them God is mighty. Look what God has done. Yes, we say, do not rebel because this is where rebellion ends. Yes, we say to them that God is merciful. But in all of these things, we say, look at Jesus Christ. Look at him. For as the psalm ends with King David, the Bible ends with King Jesus. And we look to him. But how easily... We forget, not just the lessons of Israel's history, but the lessons of what Christ has done on the cross. And so we have communion. We come to the Lord's table and we do this in remembrance 
of him. So let's close with song before we come to the Lord's table. We've said that God's word here is a mirror. I I look at this passage and I see myself in my rebellion. But I come to Jesus and I find forgiveness. He is our only hope. And let's sing of that now. Jesus, my only hope. Let's stand and sing. Thank you.